The following message is by Pastor Jason Polly. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at www.harmonybible.org. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for allowing us to gather together to worship you. God, I pray that you would worship that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray that you'd be with not only us, but also the churches that are meeting up and down the coast and around the world today as well. God, that they would worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray that your gospel would be proclaimed. I pray that as we gather here and look at your word, that we would be changed by your word, that not a single person here would leave the same as they came. And God, I pray for the same, the same for all the churches that are meeting now and that we'll meet today. God, that you would work mightily and miraculously, that you would do more than we can ask or imagine in us and through us. God, I just pray and ask that as we look to your word, you'd help us to apply it to our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So today we continue our journey through Christ's letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And today we're going to look at the church in Thyatira. And you can pray for me because I'm about to say Thyatira at least 70 times in the next 45 minutes, and that can be a tongue twister in and of itself. So Thyatira was located some 40 miles southeast of Pergamum, the church we looked at last week. And it was quite different from other cities Thyatira was. It was quite different from the other cities we've, we've looked at thus far. It was not a coastal city like Ephesus or Smyrna. And neither was it built on an impressive hill looking down on the surrounding territory like Pergamum. But also Thyatira was not a city of immense political, religious, or cultural influence. Instead, Thyatira was what we might call in America a blue-collar city. It was less of a Washington, D.C. or a New York City, if you will, and more of a Detroit, Michigan or at least what Detroit, Michigan was when there were jobs there. It's a a blue-collar working city. Thyatira was a city that had originally been built to help fend off and slow down invading armies that were heading toward Pergamum. And it did that. It did that well. In fact, several times throughout history, it it served that purpose. But because it was located on a plain, it was also destroyed nearly every day time. It wasn't easy to defend. However, by the time this letter is written, the Roman government had brought much needed peace and prosperity to the region. Thyatira had a a road that traveled north and south and connected the northern and southern parts of the region, and it became an ideal place for merchants to do business once the peace was brought there by the Roman government. And Thyatira eventually became known for its production of of many goods, including pottery, clothing, leather goods, metal goods, and many artisans lived there who would make those goods. In fact, it's probably most evident in Acts 16 when we read of Lydia. She's the first uh, convert um, in Europe to Christ. And it says that Lydia was a merchant or a seller of purple and that she was from Thyatira. So Thyatira was probably very well known for its production of purple uh, materials, purple cloth. And that verse in Acts 16 tells us that the, the goods that were produced in Thyatira went as far as Europe. 
So we're not exactly sure. When we think about Thyatira, we're not sure exactly how the gospel got there. The book of Acts doesn't tell us that per se. It may have been that Lydia went and returned to her home and preached the gospel, shared the gospel, her and her household. Or maybe it was Paul on one of his missionary journeys. But we do know that the gospel made its way to Thyatira. And that's what we see here when Christ writes this letter to the church. So Jesus writes this personal letter to the church some 40 years after his establishment of a church there. So without further ado, let's look at our text this morning. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love, and your faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality, and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality." Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am He who searches the hearts and minds, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So following the same pattern as the other letters to the churches, Jesus describes Himself in a unique way to the church in Thyatira. In verse 18 we read, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. In this description, Jesus points to both his deity and the power with which he's going to return to judge the nations. By saying that he has eyes like a flame of fire, he's letting the churches know that he sees everything. He knows every thought, every action, of not only those living in Thyatira, but also beyond. Nothing is hidden from His sight. Furthermore, by saying that His feet are like burnished bronze, He is reminding them of His mighty and awesome power. Similar language is used uh, uh, by John in Revelation 19 to describe the vision that he sees of the coming Jesus Christ. So in Revelation 19, John is given this vision of Jesus coming back to judge the world. And we see similar language. Revelation 19, starting at verse 11, says this, And I saw heaven opened, 
And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Jesus is reminding the church in Thyatira that He is coming back. That He is coming back with mighty and awesome power. And this introduction should have, should have cast fear. Not fear as in fear to be afraid of their lives, but if they knew Jesus, a reverent respect, a fear of God. A fear of the One who is writing this letter. The mighty and powerful, all-seeing Jesus. He's going to return to judge the nations. And when he does, he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God with his feet made of burnished bronze. So that's how Jesus introduces himself to the church in Thyatira. And we said last week that the introduction should have caused the church in Pergamum to stand up, to sit up and take notice. Well, so should this introduction cause the church in Thyatira to stand up and take notice. So as we move into the rest of the text, let's consider what Jesus says to this church in particular. The first point in our sermon outline is, number one, their praise. Number one, their praise. Look at verse 19 with me. Jesus says, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. The one who sees everything has this word of encouragement to the church in Thyatira. He says, I know your deeds. The word deeds here is works. And it appears four times in this letter. It's a little different than good works. It's just works in general. I know your works. I know what you do, is what he's saying. It appears four times in this letter. And it's no accident that in a a letter written to a church that is focused on their occupation on the work they do that they're craftsmen that Jesus would say I know the work you do Jesus comes to them and says I see your works but he has more in mind than just their occupation remember he sees beyond the work of one's hands he knows every thought every intention of the heart Jesus goes on to explain the deeds the works that he is referring to he says I see your faith love service, and perseverance. And then he goes on and says, and you are growing in these deeds. They're greater than when you first began. What a magnificent commendation to receive from Jesus. Can you imagine? Can you imagine we get a letter, it's addressed to Harmony Bible Church, and the return address says, Jesus Christ. And we open up that letter, right? And the letter says, I'm the one who sees everything, and I know your works. I'd be bracing myself for what comes next, right? Like, This is written by Jesus. I see everything. I know your works. And he says, I've seen how you are loving. How you put the interests of others above your own. 
I've, I've seen your faith, how you demonstrate your action in your actions that you are believing and trusting in me. I've seen your service. I know your service. How when something needs to be done, you do it. And I've seen your perseverance. How even when it hasn't been easy to live out your faith, you continue to persevere. You haven't fallen away. Can you imagine Jesus writing those words to us? And if that's not enough, and then He says, and you're growing in these things. You are growing in these things. You are constantly improving in these areas. Wow. What words to hear from Jesus. So there are apparently many in the church in Thyatira whose deeds were commendable. However, there were some in the church whose deeds were not. So that brings us to our second point in our sermon outline. The second point is the problem. Having seen their praise, now we see the problem. And it seems like as we've worked through this, these letters, we'll find that there's two letters where Jesus doesn't really address a problem. Praise God for those churches. But in all the other churches, it's clear uh, you've done this well and this well. And there's always, you're, you're waiting for that but, right? And it comes and he says, but. Look at verses 20 through 23 with me. There's that word. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds." And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. The problem at the church in Thyatira was that they tolerated this woman Jezebel. And some have argued, many commentators have argued, that there was a woman living in Thyatira whose name was actually Jezebel. Some have even argued that it was the pastor's wife living uh, there in Thyatira. Some of these um, uh, things that commentators come up with, I'm not sure quite how they get there. It's unlikely that there was a woman living in Thyatira whose name was Jezebel. The name Jezebel would have been familiar to the church in Thyatira. And I'm not saying we don't take the Bible literally. It's just Jesus says, Jesus calls her Jezebel, this this woman. See, there wouldn't have been a woman named Jezebel likely because they would have recognized that name. And as Christians, we should recognize that name. It was the name of King Ahab's wife in the Old Testament. And the Bible describes few, if any, women as being more evil than the woman Jezebel. Just this week, I said to Julia, I said, we're talking about Jezebel this week, and she said, oh, that ought to be an encouraging message. (laughs) Through her influence, Jezebel's influence, she helped lead the nation of Israel into the idolatrous worship of Baal. In fact, the book of Kings goes so far as to say that marrying Jezebel was one of the most evil things that King Ahab ever did. Listen to the words of 1 Kings 16, 29-33. It says, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. 
And Ahab, the king of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jeroboam, by the way, is... uh, Jeroboam was an evil king. And he was so evil that when you read through 1 Kings, you see that Jeroboam and Rehoboam, they they are fighting with each other. In 1 Kings, it's 11 or 12, or 11 and 12. And uh, the kingdom becomes divided. And Jeroboam is given this beautiful promise that, that he will be made king but he must follow the Lord. And he becomes so evil that every king, every evil king after that is referred to as a son of Jeroboam. Not a literal descendant, but instead, you did evil, they did evil so that they were then connected to Jeroboam in that way. And this says, it, became, it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins, in the sins of Jeroboam. That this Ahab, it was almost as though walking in the sins of Jeroboam was nothing compared to that he married Jezebel. He says, it was so evil to marry Jezebel because Jezebel was so evil that it was like walking in the sins of Jeroboam was nothing. And he goes on and says, so he erected an altar to Baal, Ahab did, the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And he made Asherah poles. It says, thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So to say that Jezebel was not looked upon with high regard is a bit of an understatement. It's highly unlikely that anyone living in that culture would name their daughter Jezebel. Especially in a culture where names had significant meaning. It's like us, someone living in our culture, naming our son Adolf or Stalin. And that's precisely what it would have been like. But Jesus, Jesus assigns this prophetess the name Jezebel, this false teacher in the church in Thyatira. And he does so as a means of characterizing her works. He goes on in verse 20 to say, She calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. You see, this woman was apparently leading others in the church in sin just like the Jezebel of the Old Testament was leading the Jews in sin and idolatry. And we can't say exactly how she was doing this, but it's likely, it's very likely, that she was teaching that it was okay for the Christians in the church in Thyatira to participate in pagan practices, namely pagan practices of the guilds, the workers' unions of that day. The guilds, just a little bit of history, were associations or organizations of workers of the same trade. So say there's a bunch of uh, cell phone makers in Thyatira. They would gather together, they would create a guild, a union, and they would share business connections, they would negotiate contracts, they would buy and sell property, and they were a powerful, powerful influence in Thyatira. Probably more than any other area in the region. In fact, Uh, Archaeological digs have shown that the guilds were a significant force of power in the church in Thyatira. And these guilds, they weren't secular, but religious in nature. Not only did they gather to discuss business, but also to participate in other pagan feasts and immoral behavior. 
Because part of that was their worship to their false gods, to their pagan gods. And this put a Christian metal worker or a Christian craftsman in a difficult position. He could refuse to participate in the guild and see the negative results it would have on his livelihood, or he could participate in the guild and become associated with and even involved with these pagan practices. So along comes this false teacher, Jezebel. And she says, it's okay, it's okay to participate in these uh, pagan things. It's likely that she was teaching a, a form of antinomianism, which is, uh, basically means against the law. They were, she was saying, you don't have to keep the law. As Matt said the other day, I was talking with Matt, and he said, grace, 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 grace is what she taught. It's all covered by grace. Do as you want. There's no need to conform to any laws or rules. It's okay to participate in the guilds. In fact, if you do so, it'll benefit you. It'll be beneficial to you. And this may seem far removed from our culture. I realize that as I stand up here and I talk about guilds, that you may think, what does this have to do with anything? But I assure you, it is not. Surely, we do not have the same workers' guilds they did in their day. But some things have not changed. If you want to get ahead in business, there are many clubs, fraternities, secret societies that promise to open up new business opportunities to you. And don't hear me say that every professional luncheon is unbiblical or immoral, right? I'm not saying that. That if you have a professional luncheon where you gather with other businessmen, that it's unbiblical. I am not saying that. What I am saying is that when the practice of these groups involve behavior that Scripture clearly condemns, we are to stay clear of them. Period. When the way to get ahead in business, the business world, is to go to the temple of a false god, it's time to run. And I've been in this world, in the world of business, when they say, you know, let's go over to the local establishment that offers adult entertainment and let's talk about business. When those lines of business and idol worship become blurred, it's time to run. And I've been part of a company where Elka-Seltzer was placed on the table for morning meetings because it was needed it because of the activities that took place the night before. And when that happens, it's time to run. Now notice what Jesus says in verses 21 through 23. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. He says, he's given her time to repent, but she doesn't want to. She wants to continue in her immoral behavior. So Jesus says, in essence, he says, she likes beds so much, I'll give her a bed, but it won't be a bed for pleasure. But instead, it's going to be a bed of death. The text literally just says, I'll give her a bed. There's no of sickness added to this. The the text adds that for clarity, and it clearly does indicate that she's going to probably get sick and that she will ultimately die. 
He says, I will throw her on a bed, is what Jesus says. She likes beds so much, I'll give her a bed, a bed that's going to lead to her death. The Lord in His grace, He's given her time to repent. However, He knows all and He sees all. And He says she does not want to turn away from her sin. Therefore, she is bringing judgment on herself. See, Jezebel is not the only one facing judgment, though. Notice that Jesus says that those who commit adultery with her, that they will experience great tribulation. He goes on and says, and her children will die. I think there are two groups of people in mind here. Number one, those who have committed their lives to Christ, but who have fallen into sin. Those who commit adultery with her. And number two, those who have not placed their trust in Christ, in Jesus, and they are Jezebel's children. The fact that genuine believers fall into sin should be evident to all of us. For Scripture teaches that the, wages, uh, that the flesh wages war against the Spirit inside of us. And we should experientially know that, that our flesh does wage war with the Spirit inside of us. Therefore, we are to abstain from fleshly lust. And not doing so, it has consequences. Continuing an unrepentant sin brings about tribulation. It brings about serious judgment from God. Judgment that is meant to bring us to the place of repentance. Now in contrast to the believer who's fallen into sin, we also see those who are called Jezebel's children. And these are not the physical children of the, of the false prophet, the false teacher. But instead, they are those who are her spiritual heirs. So he's not just saying, I'm going to kill her physical children. I think he's saying, I will kill her spiritual heirs. Those who are committed to her ways and refuse to repent. Notice in the, uh, their judgment, Jesus says, I will kill them with pestilence. Literally what he says here is in the Greek, he says, I will kill them with death. It's uh, quite amazing. He says, they're not just going to face trials, but like Jezebel they're going to be utterly destroyed. That they will face eternal judgment because of their unwillingness to repent. This is precisely what Paul was talking about when he addressed the topic of communion uh, to the church in Corinth. Look at, if you have, time, if, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 11, 28-32. I almost said, if you have time, look there. You have time, trust me. Because we're going to continue whether we have time or not. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 28 through 32. Paul says this, But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. See, judgment is meant to bring about repentance. And for the believer, it does that very thing. For the unbeliever, their unwillingness to repent results in death. Not only physical death, but what Jesus refers to in the church in Smyrna a few uh, pages ago, the second death, eternal separation from God. So don't hear me say this. Don't hear me say that if you are sick, 
right? I have this I thing going on that is because of unrepentant sin. But do hear me say this. It could be because of unrepentant sin. That God uses those things in our lives to bring us to the place of repentance. And the ultimate place where we end up when we do not repent, when we refuse to repent, is the place of eternal judgment. That in that case, we are not a believer, never were a believer. Instead, we are an heir of Jezebel. So those who have participated in her work, in Jezebel's work, in her deeds, they need to repent. That's the point. So having seen, number one, their praise, number two, the problem, we move on to the third point in our sermon outline, and it just wouldn't be a good Bible sermon point if it didn't begin with a P, the promise. Look at the third point, the promise. Look at verses 24 through 29 with me. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, those who have not done this, I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says to those who have not held to the teaching of Jezebel, those who have not known the so-called deep things of Satan, He says, I place no other burden on you. Just hold fast to what you already have. And keep my works until the end. See, Jesus makes it clear that these deeper truths that Jezebel is claiming to bring to the table, they don't come from him. Instead, they come from Satan, the great deceiver. It's likely what Jesus means here is not that the followers of Jezebel were saying, come, experience the deeper truths of Satan. But instead, they were saying, come, experience deeper truths, secrets, things that you need to know. And Jesus says, they are of Satan. The great deceiver. See, the guilds were the earliest of the secret societies. And they were the foundation upon which many of the secret societies that exist today were built. And as with many of the secret societies today, these guilds were claiming to teach deeper truths. Come, join with us and understand the hidden meanings of the many things we will show you. So Jesus says, you don't need them. You do not need this. You have what you need. Hold fast to what you have. The plain and simple truth. Hold fast to the gospel. He says, I place no other burden on you. Trust me. He says, the way to get ahead in business is not to trust the guilds. The way to get ahead is not to look to their deeper things and the spiritual things they are seeking. For it's not about getting ahead in business. It's about following me. It's not about the work that you work with your hands. It's not about the work of Jezebel. It is about my work. Look at the promise offered in, promises offered in 26-29. through 29. He who overcomes, 
And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule over them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. Again, Jesus closes this letter, like the others, with the phrase, He who overcomes. Remember 1 John 5, verses 4-5, through where John tells us, exactly who this is. John says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Clearly. Who is it who overcomes? Jesus overcomes. And he who trusts in Jesus, he who believes in Jesus, overcomes the world with him. So Jesus says, to him who believes this, to him who trusts in and keeps my works, that's what he's saying to the church in Thyatira, my deeds, not trusting in your own work, not trusting in the work of Jezebel, but trusting in Jesus' work, his finished work on the cross, namely, particularly, that they will overcome. And I don't know where... Many of you uh, are with the Lord. I assume that you're here because you love Jesus and you came here to worship Jesus. But I would be remiss in just talking about this nebulous thing called the Gospel without explaining what the Gospel is. And the Gospel is this. That we were created in the image of God, but we disobeyed God. And that God, through uh, since the creation of man, has been calling a people to Himself, And he's offered forgiveness. And this forgiveness only exists, forgiveness of sin exists only through Jesus. See, because sin separates us from God. That the punishment, the penalty for sin is eternal separation from God in hell. And that there was one person who lived without sin, and that was Jesus Christ. That God came in the flesh, lived a perfect, sinless life, and died on the cross, taking our punishment, the punishment we deserved. But that's not it. Jesus not only was buried because He was killed, He took that punishment, but He was raised from the dead. And He conquered sin and death. And that by following Him, it's not about saying a prayer. And I, I typically don't do that. The whole, alright, why don't you, why don't we bow our, uh, our heads and we'll close our eyes and I'll have you raise your hand or you can walk an aisle. And, you know, the thing is, if you have placed your trust in Jesus, it will become evident it will become evident. And if you have not, it will become evident. You see, Scripture says to follow Jesus. It's placing your trust in. It's not just believing in something, but trusting in His work. And that's what He's telling them here. So if you pray that prayer, you pray it in your own words, just say, I want to follow you. I want to trust you. I need forgiveness. And I know that Jesus accomplished that. Then you can be Forgiven. And if you want to talk more about that, come see Bill, see me. I would love to talk more about that with you. But for those of us who have made that profession of faith, who have trusted in Christ and His work on the cross, He says, I've got two things. I'm giving you two promises that we see here in this text. The morning star. He says, I will give Him the morning star. This is a reference to Jesus Himself. Revelation 22.16, He says this, Closing, close to the closing words of this letter, Jesus says, 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify, my messenger to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root, of, the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. So we have to ask, why does Jesus call himself the morning star in this text? It's interesting, if you do a study on this uh, phrase, you see that Jesus is not the only one referred to as the morning star in Scripture. But it's also a phrase used to describe none other than Satan. It says, I am the bright and morning star. That's what Satan claimed to be. Star of the morning. Jesus says, I am the true bright and morning star. And to him who overcomes, he will receive not this, this shadow of nothingness, not this, these works of Satan, but instead he will receive me. It's amazing. The promise is Jesus. The gift given is Jesus. The gift is the same as the giver. The giver gives himself. And number two, he says, when I return, they will not be trampled underfoot. He he gives them this promise that to him who overcomes, they will not be trampled underfoot when Jesus returns, but instead they will rule the nations with him. So how do we apply all of this at Harmony Bible Church? I know you love that phrase because that means we're bringing the plane in, right? It's almost the end. We're getting close. How do we apply all of this as believers here at Harmony Bible Church? I want to give you five things. Let us not be known by the works of our hands, but by the work that God is doing in our hearts. May we live in such a way that we may receive praise like the church in Thyatira. May He say to us one day, I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your service and perseverance, and that your deeds, they're greater now than they used to be that you're growing in them. May Jesus be able to say that to us. I know you, not by the work of your hands, not by whether you have a blue collar or a white collar, not by whether you're an electrician or a doctor, but by the work that I am doing in your heart. Number two, may we not tolerate the teaching, teaching in the church that adds to, subtracts from, or even detracts from the gospel. May we never tolerate teaching that takes away from, adds to, the gospel. May we be diligent to not let each other be led astray by the Jezebels of this world. May we continue to herald the gospel, not just from this podium, but in each other's lives, over the phone, in community groups. As we care for one another, may we preach the gospel to each other. And may we not tolerate those who distort that glorious gospel. Number three, may we be serious about confession and repentance. May we recognize that the tribulation we face sometimes, not always, sometimes, is the result of sin and meant to bring us to repentance. May we be serious about helping each other see this and working it out in our lives. Not to harp on community groups, but again, just another means by which community groups play out in our lives as we seek to hold each other accountable and be serious about confession and repentance. Number four, may our faith in Jesus 
be in Jesus and Jesus alone, trusting in His work on the cross. May we do His work and keep His deeds until the end. Not in our strength, but in His strength, may we serve Him. And number five, may we at Harmony Bible Church look to His return, knowing that the gift is the same as the giver. That the gift we will receive is none other than the bright and morning star. It's none other than Jesus Christ. And that when He returns, that if we overcome, not by our strength, but by His grace, by faith in Him, that if we overcome, that we will not be trampled underfoot, but instead, we will reign and rule with Him. Let us pray. Father God, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for these promises. God, even as I think on this list, I know we can't do it. God, I know that we cannot do the things that are contained on this list in our own strength. God, we need an extra measure of grace. God, may we not be like those who followed Jezebel who said, grace, 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 let grace cover everything. May grace abound so that we may sin, but we may, may we be the ones who say, grace, may you give us more grace so that we can live holy lives. God, help us. Be with us. God, I praise You for Your promise that You will build Your church. I praise You that that's what You are doing. That the gates of hell will not overcome it. God, I pray that each person here would live for Your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and for more information about Harmony Bible Church, visit www.harmonybible.org. God bless, and to God be the glory.